Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is Season 4, Episode 35, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. My name, again, is Rick. I'm author of The God Who Fights For You, just released a couple months ago. Uh, it's, a, it's a book about um, one uh, paragraph that Jesus spoke to Peter just before he went to the cross, alerting him that uh, Satan had approached him uh, about sifting Peter, and that Jesus had tacitly said yes to that, and that there was a purpose behind it. And what a shocking encounter this is, that Jesus would be approached by Satan himself and give permission to Satan to do something in Peter's life. How can that possibly be? It doesn't fit with our ideas of who Jesus is and what he permits in our life. So the whole book is an exploration of... Um, what happens in the dark spaces of our life and what Jesus is doing in those dark spaces to bring light and redemption. So that's The God Who Fights For You. It's available on Amazon. You can also uh, check out Spiritual Grit, which was released last year. It also has two companion devotions that go with it, one for teenagers, one for adults. Spiritual Grit is really an exploration of uh, where do we get the strength we so desperately need to persevere in life and it doesn't come where you think it comes from. So uh, check out Spiritual Grid and, and uh, one or both of its companion devotions. And I'm the editor, general editor of the Jesus-Centered Bible, which many of you are um, reading, maybe even right at this moment, uh, a Bible crafted by our team with special features to draw you into closer orbit around Jesus in an intentional way, and it's full of features that aren't in any other Bible. Uh, that are specifically designed to kind of draw your attention to Jesus no matter where you are. And also the Jesus-Centered Life uh, from about three years ago, on which this podcast is really got its, its start, its birth. And uh, this series that we're going to be doing from now to the end of the year, called The Beeline Practices, is drawn directly from the Jesus-Centered Life. And if you've never picked up a copy of the book uh, and you like this podcast— Really, you should go pick up a copy of the book. It 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 will give you a, a more uh, depth. Uh, it, it will give you more depth in your pursuit of Jesus, uh, and it will it dovetail into everything we talk about on this podcast, especially during this series. It would be fascinating to have you read uh, the Beeline practices in the book, The Jesus Centered Life, as we're exploring them on the podcast. the The book is divided in, in the first third of the book is an exploration of what the Jesus-centered life actually is, and the last two-thirds is called the Beeline Practices. It's just 18 or 19 uh, separate sort of um, uh, possibilities for habits in your life that will draw you into a closer intimacy with Jesus. It's not a list of do's and don'ts or ways to try harder at your relationship with Jesus. It's just a menu of possibilities. And that's where we're going to draw um, these topics for uh, this series on the Beeline Practices. So the idea is that um, as our life 
orbits around Jesus closer and closer, we become transformed by that. And the, the word beeline uh, comes from C.H. Spurgeon, the great Victorian preacher, uh, and it really, he, he's the first to have used it, and he used the, 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 the beeline to describe uh, a way of living that makes a connection between whatever it is you're pursuing and Jesus, or in his case, whatever, whatever it was he was preaching about that Sunday, and how he could make a direct connection to Jesus no matter where he started from. So he called this making a beeline to Jesus. And the interesting thing about orbiting around Jesus uh, is, and I point this out in the book, is that that orbit around him is not always circular. When we think about an orbit, we think about a, a, a perfect circle around something, but orbits are often elliptical. That means they look more like an egg than a, than a donut. <laughs> and that elliptical orbit sometimes brings us closer to the thing that we are orbiting and sometimes further away from it. But the commonality in the orbit is that no matter what, that orbit is determined by the, the, the massive object that we're orbiting around. So most of us have an elliptical orbit around Jesus. Sometimes we feel very close to him, sometimes we feel far away. But, but the fact that you feel far away is implying that you feel far away from something. And the something is the, the heavy mass of Jesus. And so what we want is a life that orbits around Jesus, even if it's an elliptical one. I love what, uh, in the book, I, I quote Bono of U2, who was asked what his favorite music is by a music interviewer, by a music writer. And Bono said, um, I love music that's either running toward God or running away from him. And the interviewer looked perplexed, and he said, I, I don't really understand that. How can those two kinds of music have anything in common? And Bono said, uh, the commonality is that they're, they're, they're orbiting around Jesus. Uh, so that whether I'm running from him or running toward him, the common thing is Jesus in the midst of that. That's my favorite kind of music. So in this episode, again, we're going to explore... Um, a beeline practice that I call the thicker life in the book, the thicker life. And it comes from a book uh, written by Dave Getz called Death by Suburb. And in that book, Getz describes a way of life that it runs counter to the, the uh, common or conventional way that we live in our culture. The thicker life means a life that is slowed down and thicker and more meaningful. We'll get deeper into that in just a second. But uh, practically speaking, what the thicker life means is that we're living uh, counter to uh, uh, the cultural norm, which is to fill up the cracks in our life. Um, we live in a fill-up-your-cracks kind of culture, actually. There's no space ever between our bricks. If you think about the mortar between bricks in a wall, um, we were created by God to have space where that mortar is, to have uh, space to, uh, to deepen our soul. But in contemporary culture, we fill every one of those gaps with mortar. There's no space. The effect is, is I, I like to think about it, is like adding paint thinner to a bucket of paint. Um, yes, it's still paint, but the coverage is really, really thin. And that's what we offer others in our life uh, at our, when we live at a breakneck pace. We offer only thin coverage to them. Um, we become a shallower version of ourselves. 
And that thin coverage extends into our relationship with Jesus as well. The feeling of it is that we feel fragile, because we are. <laughs> and the, the fragility comes because we have not created space in our lives to deepen our soul. <clears throat> and what we don't recognize or embrace is that this has a profound impact on all of our relationships, and particularly our relationship with Jesus. So distraction in our life, in this, in this kind of uh, marginless, fill-up-the-gaps kind of life, distraction is not just a frustrating reality for us in this culture. I think it's a diabolic strategy to move us away from intimacy. Listen to this. Distracted people cannot be intimate with each other. It just makes it, it just seems so simple to understand that, doesn't it, when I say that? If you're distracted, you can't be intimate with someone, because intimacy requires focus. And uh, who, who has a vested interest in us not becoming intimate with Jesus? Well, there is one that Jesus called the thief, and in John 10.10, he says, "...the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy." That's his intent. So when I say that the that distraction in our culture is actually diabolic, what I mean is it operates the way Satan operates, meaning it intends to get in the way of our progressive intimacy with Jesus and actually destroy it if it can. So who's who's behind distraction? Well, I said it's diabolic, so I think Satan is behind it, and uh, he's quite crafty about how he... Uh, works to destroy the possibility of intimacy. It's the one thing he really doesn't want. He does not want us becoming intimate with Jesus. So distraction is one of his favorite tax tactics. So um, in the book, uh, I quote a guy named Joe Krause, who's a very successful tech entrepreneur. He's a he's a partner in the venture capital firm that's called Google Ventures. And he's a board member on the Electronic Frontier Foundation. So he's basically a digital apologist. Uh, he's a digital native. He's, a, he's a, uh, a proclaimer of all the good things that the digital technologies bring into our life. And that's why when he went public about his frustration with the distractions caused by his technology, it caused a huge stir in the tech industry. Here's what he said at this um, high-profile um, public gathering um, where he chose to make this the topic of his keynote address. Here's what he said. Are you happy with your relationship with your phone? Do you think it's a healthy one? Well, I don't think I have a healthy relationship with mine. I feel a constant need to pull it out, to check email, to text, to see if there's something interesting happening right now. It's constantly pulling on my attention. We are creating and encouraging a culture of distraction, where we are increasingly disconnected from the people and events around us, and increasingly unable to engage in long-form thinking. People now feel anxious when their brains are unstimulated. We're losing some very important things by doing this. We threaten the key ingredients behind creativity and insight by filling up all our gap time with stimulation and we inhibit real human connection when we prioritize our phones over the people right in front of us. So I mentioned before in Dave Getz's book, Death by Suburb, that he's in the book advocating a sort of a countercultural way of living that he calls the thicker life. And the 
thicker life is really a lifestyle that's marked by, uh, I guess you could call it a slowed down and singular pursuit of Jesus, uh, an everyday sort of dependence on his guidance by the Spirit, and also gets points out um, in this thicker life that we develop a pattern or a habit of noticing and serving the needs of others. So to live this way, we have to adopt a more focused and less scattered mindset. So thick, in his terminology, means slow down and pay attention. That's what thick means. And slow down and pay attention in our culture is exactly swimming upstream. Um, If we just float with the current of our culture, we never slow down and pay attention. We just swim as fast as we can. We flow with the current. It's interesting, in the book, I I, uh, uh, did a bunch of research for the book, and one of the things I uncovered was uh, a quote from Nathaniel Barr and Gordon Pennycook of the University of Waterloo. They're psychologists in that, that school's psychology department, and listen to what they said about our connection to and addiction to our technology and the massive amount of information and input that that uh, then brings into our life. Here's what they said. Although the tendency to seek knowledge and information is often equated with intelligence, actually, cognitive ability is associated with less smartphone use and less time spent using online search engines. So in other words, what these guys are saying is, the less connected we are to these distracting devices that are in our life, the more brain power and insight we gain. Because why? Because we have the empty space to chew and consider and live more thickly, to use Dave Getz's term. So the premise here for this episode is that Jesus is the model for the thicker life, so what can we learn from him? And in the book, I, I cover four—these are just four— uh, different ways that I've chosen to pursue the thicker life. There's many more than these four, but it's interesting to look at these four as an example of what pursuing the thicker life might look like, and what we're going to explore now is how Jesus modeled those very same four things um, throughout his encounters with people and the way he lived his life. So the first one is live with a Sabbath mentality. So when we think about Sabbath, we think about, you know, God created the world in six days, and on the seventh day He rested. And we have all these uh, structures and debates and um, systems that we put in place to exactly mirror that six days of work, one day of Sabbath sort of mentality. So whether you choose Saturday as your Sabbath or Sunday as your Sabbath, uh, that's when we have church, because that's the day that God rested. And we, like, like we do, like the kind of sheep that we are, we have taken this six days one day, six days of work, one day of rest thing, and made it into a formula. Um, and actually, what, what I think God intends for us to take from this is that He lives with an, a lean toward rest, um, that rest is part of a healthy kingdom of God way of living. He rested on the seventh day to simply model what is healthy and good in the kingdom of God. And rest, let's, let's say that rest is, is the same thing, really, as letting the space between our bricks remain unfilled, letting that space sit there vacant 
That's what rest means. It means that we have gaps in our life when we are not highly engaged um, in the work of our brain and our soul. So if that if those gaps in the bricks remain unfilled, um, and that is a way of living in the kingdom of God, well then what does it mean to leave those gaps as gaps? What does that practically mean in our life? What can help us to disengage enough from the current of our culture so that uh, we live a Sabbath mentality in our everyday life? It doesn't mean a lazy mentality. Uh, that if that was so, we would have to call God lazy. <laughs> but actually, he, he embedded and modeled rest as part of his personality, not because he's out of energy, because we know that that's not true, he modeled it because this is a, a, the, the, the best and healthiest way for the soul to live. So uh, sometimes people ask me, because I, I create, every week I'm creating experiences for people to, th- that are, in the case of our, the group that m- meets in our home on Tuesday nights, that's a two-hour experience that we go through together, and it's highly interactive, and it has all kinds of uh, surprising experiences embedded in it. There's film. There's sometimes music that that's involved. There are things that we build. There's things that we tear down. It is uh, highly involved. And sometimes when I'm doing something like that, and I do things like that also with adults in my life, and I create these things all the time. And people will sometimes ask me, "Wow, that looks like it." must take a lot of time to create those things. When do you find the time to create those things? Well, actually, the truth about it is, one, I've been doing this a long time, but the second thing is, because in my life I leave gaps in the bricks, I I don't fill all of my brick wall with mortar, because I leave gaps, I try to live in a Sabbath mentality, those gaps help me to chew. Um, Here's what that looks like. Um, on the morning that I'm going to be leading something that night, I might wake up, and instead of getting out of bed right away, I give myself 10 or 15 minutes of silent time when I'm awake in the bed, and I'm simply putting before Jesus the, the uh, focus that um, I intend to take that, that evening with that group, and I, and I uh, purposefully give myself that gap of time to just sit in it, to wallow in it, like I'm sliding into a hot tub, or I'm slowly chewing a great piece of meat or something. I, I, I don't know what kind of metaphor to use, but all I do is create some time to chew, to let it settle in. And what happens is that the Spirit comes into that gap, and the Spirit, who is the rabbi inside, begins to teach and reveal and surface and highlight and show possibilities. But the only way that happens is if I'm slowed down and I literally stop and give him the gap that the Spirit needs to illuminate where this could go. And so my process usually takes only that 10 or 15 minutes before I know sort of the path that we need to go and maybe the way that we're going to get there and the things that I can do to to get us to onto that path, it all comes in that 10 or 15 minutes of gap time where I just rest, and I let the Spirit inhabit that thought and chew on it with me until light comes and things start to pop. 
if you're a creative person and maybe you're a songwriter or you're you're a painter or um, or you're a writer or whatever artistic bent you have, you understand that this gap time is really crucial. It's even sacred, and it's sacred because the spirit hovers over it. I just saw an interview with uh, Dolly Parton over the weekend. Uh, my favorite TV show is called CBS Sunday Morning. It's a hour-and-a-half-long show that focuses on longer feature stories that are all loosely connected to art and culture, and it's just a brilliant show. It was started by Charles Corral a few decades ago and carried on to this day, and um, I love that show. And they did a long interview with uh, Dolly Parton this last weekend, and she said something fascinating to the interviewer. Uh, while she was being interviewed, she had her guitar sitting there, and every now and then she'd just pick it up and start strumming it or break into a song or ask the interviewer to sing with her, and and he was asking her about how many songs she's written. You'd be surprised how many songs Dolly Parton has written. I think she's written more than 1,200 songs in her career. Some of them are iconic songs. But she, she, the interviewer is asking her, well, how do you write? What's the process of writing a song? And wow, how have you written so many of them? And she looked at him and said, I refer to this gap time when I'm writing a song as my God space. It's when I kind of... Um, get away alone with God, and I'm chewing on the idea of my song, and then it appears, it surfaces, it that between the two of us, something comes up to the surface, and I can capture it and start to put it down on paper. Um, and I, I so resonated with what she was saying, because... She, uh, now, we all know that Dolly Parton has a lot of things going on, amusement park and songwriting and TV shows and acting. She's obviously a busy person, but she was revealing to the interviewer that part of that busyness is intentional gaps in her life, and she cherished those times. I mean, she was she was sort of stroking her guitar as she was saying this, because the guitar represented this sacred space that she has with God where she writes songs. Uh, so how do we see this uh, modeled and lived out by Jesus? So uh, here's, here's something that, you, as soon as I say it, you'll, you'll recognize this is an iconic thing Jesus says, but we're going to take a look at it through this lens of Sabbath in just a second. He says, "'Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest.'" So here's the way I want us to think about this. Jesus says, "'Come, come to him, all you who are worn out.'" by the, the, uh, the pace of life, the, uh, the rat race of life. Uh, come to me, all of you who are distracted by your technology. Come to you, who, all of you who have had the gaps in your bricks filled up. Um, come to me, all of you who feel shallow or like paint that's been thinned out, um, and I will give you rest. And the rest that we get comes from being in His presence, so what Jesus is saying is, come to me, um, and when you are with me, you will discover rest. And to come to me means to focus on me, to pay attention to me, to make me the point. Um, and when you make me the point, I will give you rest. He goes on to say uh, that when we come to him in this undistracted way and we find rest, he... he 
continues that by saying we t- that when we take his yoke upon him, um, our soul will come to rest. And is taking his yoke upon him, as uh, those of you who've been listening to podcasts for a long time, you'll recognize that phrase. It's in my book, Spiritual Grit, and I go into greater detail about that phrase. It's a kind of a funny phrase, take my yoke upon you. But what that meant is, back in the day, a rabbi who was pursued by a student called the Talmud um, um, would consider whether he wanted to take on that student, because it was a major commitment. That student would have to convince the rabbi that he was a worthy student, um, that he was smart and curious and ready to grow, because uh, if this relationship um, between the Talmud and the rabbi goes forward, it means that that Talmud leaves his family and his home and his maybe even his family business and goes to live in the rabbi's house, and he'll be living there for the next decade as a uh, not just to learn in a kind of an academic way from the rabbi, but to learn by being immersed in, the, in that rabbi's presence. And when the rabbi has determined that he would like to take on that Talmud, that student, he, he says something very formal to the Talmud. He, he invites him to take his yoke upon him, which means that that, that Talmud now will uh, come underneath that rabbi's life, will, will willingly connect himself to that rabbi's life, will willingly be led by that rabbi's life. And this is what Jesus is trying to say when he invites us to take his yoke upon us. He's saying when we come to him and give ourselves over to him, that we will find the rest that we crave. It's interesting in Mark chapter 6, um, the, the, Jesus and the disciples had been much with um, crowds, miracles and healings and teachings, and he, had, he has just sent his disciples out on their first ministry trip without him, and they come back um, exhausted from the experience and full of stories and disappointments as well as successes, and here's what Jesus says uh, as soon as they return. So this is from Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 30. It says, "...the apostles returned to Jesus from their ministry tour and told him all that they had done and taught. And then Jesus said, well, let's go off by ourselves to a quiet place and rest a while." Now, if you keep reading, his plan for rest gets thwarted. (laughs) But what he's trying to tell them is, um, it's important that, uh, that you guys and me come away and create a gap now, to create a restful space. To, to debrief your experience, but also to chew on it, to let things settle, to let things get from the surface of your experience to the depths of your soul. And in order to do that, we're going to have to uh, disengage, to get away from the voices and the crowds and the demands. In order for that to happen, we have to get away. So Jesus did this, obviously, many times. He, he goes off to be alone himself, and he often invites his friends to come away for rest. Rest, again, is not simply about our exhaustion level. Rest is proactive. It is the way we were wired to live. We are created in the image of God, and that God chose uh, to to take one-seventh of his time, I guess you could say, and give it over to, to rest. And really what he's saying is rest 
needs to be um, threaded into our everyday life. And the rest here that I'm talking about is creating gaps in your life, even small gaps where you can chew and rest and sink into him. The second thing I talk about in the book, I call it notice, notice, notice. My my friend Tom Melton, who um, is my longtime pastor and close friend, he has a, a, a number of phrases that he throws out all the time that I call Tomisms, and this is one of them that uh, is so simple but so profound. He's, he always says, notice what you notice. Notice what you notice. What he means is that things stick out to us sometimes. Things um, capture our heart. Um, things that people say stick out to us. Um, things in the news um, grab us. Um, people and places seem to capture our attention. Um, uh, one little word or one little tone of voice that somebody uses can really um, uh, stick out to us. And so what he means is notice what you notice, and that means when you notice something like that, pay attention to why you notice it. I mean, what's going on in me? Why, why does that thing stick out? So uh, this morning I went to uh, an early morning breakfast meeting. It was a business appreciation breakfast for our town here in Loveland, and the uh, city council, the city commissioners, somebody like that, put on this breakfast and invited anyone who's in the business community here in, in our our town to come to it. So there was a, a couple hundred people there for breakfast, and they hired um, a fairly well-known uh, keynote speaker whose shtick and his whole his whole speaking um, business is built around how to use uh, the skills of improvisation in a business setting. So that was the keynote person, and I've done a, quite a bit of work um, in training ministry leaders on how to lead using the skills of improvisation, because those are the same skills Jesus used as he engaged and transformed people. And so... Um, in this improv training that I was at this morning, the speaker was trying to make a point that we don't pay very focused attention typically to one another. And in a business environment, that can mean the difference between an effective and a successful team and sort of a disaster. Um, and, and the reason he was pointing this out is that in improvisation skills, when you're improvising with somebody, you have to really, really pay acute attention to the person you're improvising with, or it doesn't work. And it actually teaches uh, you to grow a muscle that we really need. And I think what he was saying is really true. We don't listen very acutely or don't pay attention very acutely to those around us. And when you're in an improvisational environment, that's not an option. You have to. And it's a good, it's a good muscle to grow in us because when we learn to pay attention to each other in a business environment, that can really uh, kind of meld together a strong team. Um, and he gave examples of how teams that that do listen well and pay attention to each other well have had tremendous success and how some teams that don't that operate in little, little silos and don't seem to pay attention to each other uh, um, end up in disaster. So beauty is always in the details. And so when we pay attention to the details, um, to notice what we notice, we find beauty. So what are some examples of, of this with Jesus? 
noticing what you notice. Um, and again, this goes back to living a thicker life. Instead of letting all of the detail whiz by you because you're going too fast to notice them, here's what happens when you slow down and pay better attention. Your life becomes thicker. So, so many examples of Jesus doing this that they're just almost endless. So let's just take the Samaritan woman at the well, uh, uh, a woman that comes up to the well in the middle of the day when all the other women are gone because she's a notorious woman and she's had five husbands and she's living with victim number six <laughs> right now. And Jesus does not know her. Uh, they are strangers to each other. Uh, she's shocked and surprised that she encounters a man at the well, and he starts to say funny things to her like... Uh, you know, I could give you living water if you really want it, and she misunderstands what he's meaning and thinks that what he means is she could have an unending supply of water somehow, and that would really help her out. But the deeper they get into the conversation, uh, the tipping point, the turning point of the conversation is when Jesus says to her, when he asks her, uh, why don't you bring your husband out here? Because that's the appropriate thing to do, is Instead of him talking to a woman alone, it would be appropriate for her to bring her husband out so that he was present when he was talking to her. So he says something that apparently looks innocent, and she says, oh, I don't have a husband. And then he says something that um, hooks her. This is the thing that makes her want to listen to him. This is the thing that in the end ends up transforming her life. He says, yeah, that's right, you, you don't have a husband. You've had five before, and the guy you're living with now isn't your husband. So this is an extraordinary attention to detail. It is noticing what he notices in this woman. And he goes on to point out other things about her that he notices. He does this, again, all the time, and what it does is it unlocks and hooks this woman. She's never been paid attention to quite in the way Jesus is. And in the end, what she discovers is he's the Messiah, and she becomes one of the first missionaries. She goes back to the, the town of Sicker through the walls with the people that uh, don't want anything to do with her, and she starts to proclaim that she's met the Messiah and invites them to come outside the walls and meet him. So we have there the Samaritan woman at the well, or you can look at the, the woman who had an issue of blood and comes up behind Jesus in a crowded public space, touches the, the hem of his garment, and then is instantaneously healed and wants to sneak off into the into the, uh, into the cam camouflage of the crowd again, and Jesus stops and says, who touched me? And his disciples are like, well, anyone could have, but he, his point is he wants the woman to, to stop in her tracks, and he begins to talk with her to try to extract uh, out of her the shame that she has lived with. He, he slows down and pays ridiculous attention to this woman, to engage with her for the purpose of freeing her from her shame. Uh, you could go to uh, the, the story of when he called Nathaniel, and Nathaniel had uh, been approached by Philip, and Philip said, you got to come meet this guy, I think he could be the Messiah, and then Nathaniel's pretty cynical, and the, what, this guy's from Nazareth, nothing ever good comes out of Nazareth, but he grudgingly goes to meet Jesus, and the very first time that Jesus meets Nathaniel. Guy comes walking up, he sees him for the first time, and he says, uh, look, here's, a, here's an Israelite in whom there's no guile. He immediately calls something out about Nathaniel that is true about him, and it stops Nathaniel in his tracks. He's like, how do you know that about me? 
Um, it's a powerful way of um, stopping people in their tracks by pointing out what you notice about them, and this is what Jesus does right away with Nathaniel, or he does the same thing with the Pharisees all the time. He, he pays ridiculous attention to the things they're saying and the practices that they're promoting, and he calls them out. Or Jesus' Jesus's encounter with Peter on the beach after his resurrection, where uh, they eat a little fish breakfast this, uh, together, and then Jesus asks Peter three times if he loves him. Again, he's trying to draw out something in Peter by asking him, do you love me, three times in a row. And uh, it does draw out what is in Peter. It's this anger and hurt and pain and frustration over the betrayal that he hasn't yet um, come to terms with. But Jesus is paying attention to Peter, so he asks him three times, do you love me? All, in all of these ways, Jesus has slowed down, paid attention to to what he notices, and then uh, dives into what he notices. He doesn't let it slide by. So this is beauty in the details. Uh, he gives people uh, over and over again the dignity of his focused attention. Let me say that again. Jesus gives people over and over again the dignity of his focused attention. This is, by the way, why I am so notoriously bad at small talk. I am completely comfortable one-on-one -on -one with someone or in a group where we are intentional in our conversation, but when it's just whatever you want to talk about, I'm pretty bad at it. <laughs> and I think part of it is um, because I slow down and pay attention to the details in front of me, the kind of conversation that comes from that doesn't lend itself very well to casual social gatherings or just banter in the locker room. Um, I'm just bad at it. It's a totally different skill, and I'm, I'm trying to learn how to be better at it because I just am sort of repelled by um, casual social environments because the, the level of conversation that can happen at those things is very unsatisfying for me. But that really comes as a fruit of trying to live a life that pays better attention to the details of people around me. So the third thing that I point out in the book is follow the beeline in the Bible. Um, so this is an interesting um, uh, kind of history-giving for how the Jesus-centered Bible came about. We essentially envisioned a Bible that beelined every place in the Bible to Jesus, and that's what eventually led to this idea that we had of, of taking the Old Testament and looking for every place we could find that either foreshadowed or pointed to Jesus in the Old Testament and then highlighted those letters and that verse or that passage in blue, and then created a little a breakout box for each one of those that describes the connection, and we call those the blue letters in the Old Testament, and they exist simply to slow you down when you're reading through the Old Testament and become aware of how the Old Testament is really all the time pointing to Jesus. No matter where we are in the Old Testament, it's always pointing forward to the Messiah. So that's the blue letters in the Jesus-centered Bible. That, that's one expression in that Bible, one special feature that we put in that um, beelined, no matter where you were in the Bible, to Jesus. And we just—all we did, it's already there, we just pointed it out in a, in, a, in a highlighted way and then explained the connection. So all, all that does is make us slow down and consider Jesus no matter where we are. And the way that we do that, uh, when, when you're reading the Jesus-centered Bible, uh, we've tried to make it easy for you, but— there's also other ways to, to beeline to Jesus when you're reading Scripture. You can 
ask yourself questions like this. How does this story or this truth connect to the heart of Jesus or the truths he's revealed? How does this story or this truth that I'm reading about, how does it connect to the heart of Jesus? Uh, how, how is that an expression of the heart of Jesus or the truth that Jesus came to reveal? Or another question you can ask is, well, what about this story or truth reminds me of Jesus? How is it like Jesus? Or how does this story or truth match or not match my experience of Jesus? Or if I was going to teach someone the meaning of this story or this truth, how would I connect it to Jesus? How would I make a beeline to Jesus? And when I'm training ministry leaders in this approach, I, I have them at a table as a team. One of them has to close their eyes and randomly jab their fingers somewhere in the Bible, um, and then wherever their finger lands, um, I give them the challenge that they have 15 minutes to construct an outline for a message that they're supposed to give literally in 15 minutes at their church, and they, their, their sermon topic, if you want to call it that, is, is their, their passage is wherever their finger came down on, but their challenge is to take that passage and figure out what the beeline to Jesus is. So it's fascinating when you do this in a crowd of 100 people with maybe 20 different tables working on this, um, and then you stop and you ask them, uh, what is your outline now? What's your passage, that your random passage that you pointed to, and what's the beeline to Jesus that you discovered? There's this sort of collective light bulb that goes off over the room, where they realize no matter where they are in Scripture, with just 15 minutes of preparation around a table, they have figured out the beeline to Jesus, how that thing connects to Jesus. It's extraordinary to watch. So it's a living example of what it means to beeline in the Bible. Um, by the way, this is, I think, what Paul meant, Apostle Paul meant in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, when he said, um, I've determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ. So here's one of the most learned men in the ancient world who knows Scripture inside out, and what he's saying is, in, that, uh, in my unveiling of Scripture, I'm determined to know nothing but Jesus. So whenever I speak of um, uh, Scripture, I'm always going to be connecting it back to Jesus. This is what it means to be determined to know nothing but, but Jesus. And uh, it's interesting that uh, Jesus himself um, beelined to himself. If you, <laughs> This kind of sounds funny, but let me give you an example. In John chapter 6, uh, starting in verse 30, here's what he says. Moses fed our ancestors with bread in the desert. Um, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, this is the people first uh, speaking to Jesus. I should have prefaced that. So the people say to Jesus, Moses fed our ancestors with bread in the desert. It says so in the scriptures. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So the people are asking Jesus, hey, we want more of that bread. Can you do that thing again? And Jesus responds, the real significance of that scripture is not that Moses gave you bread from heaven, but that my Father is right now offering you bread from heaven, the real bread. The bread of God came down out of heaven and is giving life to the world. So to set this up, the people quote from the Old, the Old Testament about um, God giving um, bread from heaven uh, to the people to eat. And so they're quoting from the Old Testament, and then Jesus beelines it back to himself. He says, actually, that the bread of heaven has actually come down and is standing right in front of you right now, and, and I'm inviting you to eat of me. Um, and this sets off this progression where he just repeats himself over and over again, and 
invites them to eat his body and drink his blood, and it drives all these crowds away. But here he's taking um, a random Old Testament reference, and he's creating a bridge or a beeline back to himself in the moment. He does the same thing with that, that woman at the well outside the walls of Sychar. You know, in, in Luke chapter 8, that's where that story is. Um, he tells this woman, if you remember, that the water from Jacob's well, which, which she's come out to draw, the water from Jacob's well is nothing compared to the living water of himself, who is standing right in front of him, in front of her. So what he's saying is he's making an, a reference um, from Old Testament Scripture about uh, the significance of that very well, and he's then beelining it back to himself and saying, but I'm the living water standing right in front of you. Jesus was always finding the beeline back to himself. No matter where people started, he was always trying to bring the focus back to who he is and what he came to do. All right, the last thing is called switch on, switch off. Now, this is a, different from the other ones a little bit. It's, it's kind of a simple way of thinking about life and how to uh, create um, space in your life to grow a thicker soul. Uh, how, what are some pragmatic, simple ways to do to do that? I'm just going to throw out a bunch of different ways that um, I do in my own life, and I've learned from others how they do this in their life. I call it switch on, switch off, and it's as simple as this. You, you in, Instead of having lights on in your home and in the evening, switch them off. Switch off the lights and light some candles. The, the, the flame... Uh, especially over the the LED lights that are so popular today, a flame is a living organic thing, and it has this deep calming effect on your soul. It slows down your pulse and uh, helps to start to bring a, a sense of restfulness into your soul when you switch off the lights and light some candles. So we have a habit of lighting a lot of candles in our house, and we have every dinner meal uh, that is not outside on our deck uh, by candlelight. Uh, we light a candle in the middle of our table. It helps everyone at the table to slow down the pace of their life and prepares the way for more intimate conversation. Um, it sounds funny, but it works. Try it. I challenge you. Uh, take one night and turn off the lights and light some candles instead and see what kind of impact it has on your conversation, and also on the pace of your soul. Or you can switch off background noise and switch on silence. So for those of you who keep the TV on in the background um, all the time, uh, I'd like to throw out something that could uh, help to thicken your soul. Turn the TV off. Don't use it as background noise. Um, get used to and embracing more silence in, in your life. It will give your soul room to choose. And almost, um, I, I guess another way of saying that is it'll, it'll stop suffocating your soul with an onslaught of information all the time. It'll give it a little gap. So you can also switch off voices and switch on instrumental music. So we listen to a lot of instrumental music in our household, mostly jazz, um, because the, when you're not listening to voices and taking in mental information, it gives your soul a break. And uh, we, I love to have music in the background of my life. It's a different kind of language. Um, so when I'm not 
when I'm not having gaps of silence, I'm I'm filling that with instrumental music, which uh, brings sort of a uh, a soul language into your life. It can slow you down and give you kind of a, a way of chewing on things and inviting the spirit into that gap. You can also switch off your technology and switch on the organic, meaning that you intentionally have times in your household where everyone is switched off of their technology and you're all focused on the organic, which is the face-to-face relationship. Or you can switch off inside and switch on outside. So uh, inside often has many, many, many reminders of our marginless life. But if you get out from inside and go outside, especially if outside means being around nature, you get reconnected with the, with the slower rhythm, the restful rhythm of creation. So switch off inside and, and switch on outside, or switch off your head and switch on your body. It sounds funny, but this is why I work out several times um, during the week. Um, I need a mental break. My soul needs a break. And when I exercise physically, it gives me the very gap I need. So when I'm exercising my body, I can push the clutch in on my head sometimes or on my soul, and I have something hard physically that I have to pay attention to. It gives my my soul a break. It gives it some rest. Uh, Or you can uh, switch off the fire hose of uh, stuff that's coming at you and switch on only one input, meaning uh, we're usually surrounded by many, many forms of input in our life. What if you switched them off and just focused on one thing? That is a form of rest. So you can uh, you could switch on an album, a song, a book, a film, a Bible passage, a podcast like this one, where you're just focusing on one thing instead of many things. Well, you're not multitasking, you're omni, you're, you're unitasking, I guess we could call it. You're just focused on only one thing. That also gives your soul a rest when we focus on just one thing. So an example of Jesus living this out, after the miracle of the loaves and the fish, he tells his disciples to, you know, go on without him while he retreats into the, uh, into the hillside, and he intends to come later. So here, what is, what's he doing is he's switching off the voices of not just the crowds that have been pressing in on him for a long time, but also the, the pressing voices of his disciples. He needs a break from input, so he switches off the voices around him, and he switches on the quiet. Uh, another way of saying this is uh, he's, you know, that uh, uh, infamous story of him clearing the temple of the money changers. Uh, um, this is Jesus's way of clearing the temple. He's he's getting the people out of the sacred space so that the sacred space can be quiet again. That's what he does by going off on his own. The Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann says this: Sabbath, in the first instance, is not about worship. It's about work stoppage. <laughs> it's about the refusal to let one's life be defined by production and consumption and the endless pursuit of private well-being. I love what he says there at the very beginning, that Sabbath is not about worship, it's about stopping the work. And that's what our soul is craving, that is what our relationship with Jesus demands, that we stop working 
and have space to enjoy, to sink into him, to chew with him, to, to have him impress upon us things that we need to pay attention to, to find in him the encouragement and inspiration we really need. We won't find those things if we don't have gaps in our life, if we don't have Sabbath. Let me repeat the last thing Walter Brueggemann says here. The refusal to let one's life be defined by production and consumption and the endless pursuit of private well-being. That's what Sabbath is. So those of us who live in the frenetic chaos of distraction, we can't really offer the right soil for meaning to grow in our, in our soul. So a reactive life is like the surface of the moon, actually. It, it, it doesn't provide the right conditions for abundant life. Um, we just can't grow anything on the surface of the moon, and that's what a reactive, thin um, life gives us. We need a thicker life so that things can grow in our soul. And Jesus came to plant life in our life. Remember that, what I said before, that when Jesus identified the diabolic intent of distraction, he says, the thief has come to kill and steal and destroy. But remember what he said right after that. He's, he's, he's unveiling the purpose and mentality and strategy of Satan. And he's only come to steal and kill and destroy. And then he, then he does the same for himself. I came that you will have life and have it abundantly, and he can't plant life in us if we don't prepare the soil for him. All right, gang, thanks for listening. Remember to check out the Jesus-Centered Bible to discover and draw close in a close orbit to the most beautiful person who has ever been. Uh, Check out the Jesus-Centered Bible if you don't already have one. Uh, It will help you to uh, create a closer orbit around him, even if it's an elliptical one. (laughs) And remember, you can find out more about uh, this podcast on PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. We'll have links on there for everything we've talked about. You can easily access them. You're looking for Season 4, Episode 35, and this is Pain Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll talk to you again next time, and I think the Beckinator will be with us next week. See you then.